Primary care is the mainstay for managing patients with hyperlipidemia or mixed dyslipidemia. But in practice, we don't often encounter it in isolation. Comorbid conditions such as diabetes, hypertension, and coronary artery disease follow dyslipidemia like common catchphrases. So it becomes necessary to understand this problem in the context of complicated patients. What do we need to know to optimize patient outcomes? You're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD. I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz, and I'm joined by Dr. Gregory Pokrivka, Director of Baltimore Lipid Center and Assistant Professor of Medicine at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. Dr. Pokrivka, welcome to the program. Good morning. Thanks very much for inviting me. My pleasure. Let's first get a sense of the patient population in question. How would you loosely define complicated patients with dyslipidemia? Uh, I, I would say what we typically see in, in primary care are patients who have... Um, hypertension, who are older, uh, or on multiple medications, uh, et cetera. It's not too common to see somebody uh, who comes in who's young and has one isolated problem, uh, such as dyslipidemia. That, that happens occasionally, and those are the easy patients. But the, there's so much, there's so many patients with what we call cardiometabolic risk in our offices, meaning uh, patients who are at risk for both uh, insulin-resistant spectrum of disorders, including diabetes. We see a lot of polycystic ovarian syndrome out there. We see uh, uh, patients who are pre-diabetic. So, you know, we, we see these patients over and over again. Our waiting rooms are filled you know, with overweight, uh, insulin-resistant patients who also have lipid disorder. So I'm going to pose to you an impossible question because the complicated patient is a very broad term. But what initial thoughts go through your mind as you enter the room to meet a new uh, patient with dyslipidemia with known comorbid medical problems? What are some of the first thoughts that, that go through your head? Well, w- with any patient, we always try to assess uh, whether or not they have abnormal lipoprotein trafficking. That uh, We tend to get hung up with numbers. You know, is the LDL cholesterol 170, that's too high, or is it 70, that's low enough? But we really treat patients. So you have to look at the patient and say, does this person have abnormal lipoprotein trafficking? You know, uh, do they have increased cardiometabolic risk? Uh, that's what I look at. And uh, uh, obviously, when the typical patients I see, I see both consultation patients and primary care patients who are often already on medications. So from the get-go, thinking, what kind of drug-drug interactions might we have in this patient? So you think it's a, a common misconception or a trap that a lot of physicians and other clinicians fall into when they look at a patient's risks primarily from the context of their lipid profiles. Is that a common trap? Absolutely, because the the standard lipid profile that we use to assess risk was developed in the 1950s when the world was different. We didn't have the insulin resistance that, that we have now. Back, if, if, you, if you bring in somebody from the leave it to beaver era, and uh, all you need to know really is, is their smoking status and their LDL cholesterol, and you get a pretty good handle what's happening. But that's not true now. Um, what, what, what happens in 2012 is when you get insulin resistance, you get um, shifts in the size of your LDL particles and, and the, the cholesterol and triglyceride um, uh, composition of those particles that make the, the lipid panel quite misleading. And I, I, I can elaborate on that if, if you want. Well, you know, yeah, I mean, let's, let's funnel into that. My first thought is, um, you know, we, on, that, on that notion, we talk about heart disease, which is what people think firsthand when they think of dyslipidemia. They, they immediately go there. But how, how might dyslipidemia influence the development of other uh, medical conditions and even psychological conditions? I mean, there are some known uh, links, and you mentioned diabetes and some interesting ways in which dyslipidemia directly affects uh, the development of diabetes. Can you get into that a little bit? Yes. Um, well, 
But when, when a diabetic patient uh, uh, is newly diagnosed, their their first concern um, usually is uh, r- related to the microvascular disease complications. Every diabetic knows um, um, uh, someone else who's had, for example, a, a vascular amputation due to vascular disease in extremities or somebody who went blind or somebody who wound up on dialysis, et cetera. These microvascular concerns are important to patients, and they're important quality of life issues. But when I see a diabetic, I think, wow, their risk of, of heart attack and stroke, macrovascular disease, just, just really went up. And, and that's where we can make a, a major impact with our, our pharmacologic strategies um, in these patients. Um, unfortunately, there's some newer data showing that the very tools we use to reduce macrovascular risk, statins, uh, have a, a slight increased incidence of diabetes in patients. Now, we don't want to throw out the baby with the bathwater here. Okay, the instance of diabetes with statins tends to be occurring in patients who are almost diabetics. Uh, it's a, um, we know that, that macrovascular disease is still reduced even in those patients who become diabetic. We know that it's rare for, for patients to become diabetic from statins, and, and we know that statins do work and have a high efficacy. So we, it's, we, we need to maintain perspective here and, and realize that Yes, there is a slightly increased risk of diabetes from statins, but we don't we don't want to not use statins because of that fear. Well, it's a really interesting point you bring up because uh, some patients who get wise to this will develop a fatalistic attitude and uh, have a kind of "I'm damned if I do, I'm damned if I don't" regarding using right. statins. How do you counsel those patients in that instance? I, I use the same kind of you know "don't throw out the baby with the bathwater" uh, you know type of analogy. All medications have potential for side effects. There, there's no doubt about that. But um, the studies have clearly shown that even though there's a slight incidence of diabetes uh, in patients treated with high-intensity statins, that uh, statins are still effective in reducing heart attacks, strokes, mortality, et cetera. So you have to have that discussion with patients. You should probably even have it up front when you start the statin. Because patients are very savvy now, and they see this in the media. And I don't want patients stopping their medication because they read something on a website. So I, I try to be proactive. Well, why don't we get a little bit into the, the safety tolerability index ideas of, of statins? Uh, what are some of your chief concerns before starting and, and during the course of um, putting patients on statins? What are some of the chief concerns that you have? Well, I, th- I think um, the, the, the patients will come in and say, well, I heard this is bad for my liver. You know, if you uh, we get this a lot after um, Super Bowl weekend when there tend to be a lot of statin commercials, you know, directed at male patients. The patients come in and say, "My God, I saw on TV the other day, this can harm my liver." And the FDA has actually addressed this recently with a new uh, update statement, uh, loosening the need for liver function test monitoring. So now we can now tell patients, "Look, here's the latest guideline. It says you monitor the liver test before you start a statin, and then when we change the dose, and that's it." We no longer have to do it every four months or, or periodically. So what does that say? That tells the, the clinician and the patient, look, statins are safer than we thought. We've got a lot of experience with them. We really don't need to worry about liver disease. We worry about cost with statins. Obviously, uh, there are inexpensive generics available. Uh, unfortunately, those generics tend to be um, statins that are either less potent or have more potential for drug-drug interactions. So by no means would I say just switch everybody to a generic statin, there's certainly um, some issues with some of them. Um, there's the potential for, for diabetes risk that we mentioned. Um, the FDA has said we need to um, issue uh, an acknowledgement that some patients have reported anecdotally that statins can cause reversible memory loss. 
And patients are concerned about this. I get calls from patients saying, I heard a statin's going to cause dementia. And that's not the case at all. We're talking about anecdotal evidence, which has never really been looked at prospectively, that statins may cause temporary cognitive impairment. We do hear about patients who say, yeah. um, I just feel fuzzy. I have to concentrate right. more fully to be able to wrap myself around a task. Right. right. And this is not well understood. There are prospective studies of this uh, underway. Uh, from a practical standpoint, if a patient says that and they're on a statin, we just stop the statin and switch to another. And uh, often the problem will go away. But this is not a well-understood phenomenon at all, but it, its incidence appears to be rare, and it's reversible. What about uh, some of the factors that predispose patients to what we would call statin intolerance? What are some of those factors, just to review? Uh, certainly when, when patients are, are older, when they're on um, multiple medications. Uh, obviously, statins, like any other drug, are metabolized, so there's potential for drug-drug um, interactions. Um, patients who have significant other uh, hepatic and renal disease, uh, patients who are in, in uh, settings of, of acute trauma uh, from, from a physiologic standpoint, such as patients who are septic or have uh, a severe endocrine or, or metabolic disorder. These are going to be the pre- and, and female gender. Um, women seem to be more, um, have more potential for drug-drug interactions. And ethnicity, too. Exactly. We're only beginning to understand the genetics of that. But, for example, our resuvastatin has to be down-dosed in, in patients of South uh, Asian eth- ethnicity because one of the, um, the roots of metabolism, there's a genetic variant that, that varies with uh, South Asian ethnicity. So You know, when you mentioned uh, drug-drug interactions, polypharmacy, uh, this is another one of those issues in which um, that potential fatalism can erupt uh, and that don't throw out the, the baby with the bathwater situation because people who have to be on high-intensity statins, but they're coming in with already being on multiple drugs that could cause drug-drug interactions. Uh, this is another one of the situations in which you have to counsel patients, I'm sure, through that. Uh, how do you go about doing that? <laughs> well, I, I, I just tell the patients, uh, if you're not alive, you won't be able to take your other medicines. You know, And, and, and the statins have been proven to reduce mortality. Uh, they reduce you know, major cardiovascular events. So uh, I'm biased, I guess, but uh, you know, cardiovascular disease is the number one killer of our patients. So that has to take priority over potential drug-drug interaction with your medicine for urinary incontinence or your allergy medicine or something else like that. I mean, cardiovascular morbidity mortality, huge issue. And what you're saying makes perfect sense. I mean, it's a, it's, I can't think of a more powerful argument, although you still must come across a lot of uh, what we call statin phobia. Yes. Um, you know, Absolutely. and, and uh, it must be quite a wall. Yes, and, and the way you handle that, you have to acknowledge it. If you blow it off, the patient will just find another physician. Or, or, or worse, they'll go to an alternative medicine provider who's going to use some form of wacky, uh, non-science-based uh, treatment, and you, you could lose the patient. Completely, the patient could lose their life. So you have to acknowledge it, take the time to do that. Um, I often tell patients, well, look, let's, tr- let's try it your way. Do what you want to do. You know, you want to take, uh, you know, your red yeast rice or you want to take your uh, lecithin or you want to try, you know, whatever you got in the mail. Uh, it says it lowers uh, cholesterol. You know, presuming this stuff is safe, if something is unsafe, I'm going to tell them, you know, not to do it. For example, red yeast rice has potential, significant potential for drug-drug interaction with certain cytochrome P450 uh, metabolized drugs. So I'm not It's going to just okay that in every patient. But I, you let the patient do it their way first, bring them back after three or four months, and run the lipoprotein analysis again, see where they've gotten. You know, that's, and that way you can convince the patient that, hey, you know, you, your way isn't working. We may have to try it my way. You know, I'm willing to work 
with you and, and, and adapt my way. So it seems like a great strategy. Do you do you worry at times that uh, there might be a critical window miss that you want to get more aggressive with some? Well, I, absolutely. Under ATP three guidelines, if the patient is a high risk patient, a CHD risk equivalent, you know, if the risk for an event, a major event, non fatal MI or cardiovascular death is greater than twenty percent in ten years. Uh, if, if they're in that high-risk category, we really should initiate pharmacologic therapy along with lifestyle therapy simultaneously. Under ATP 2 and 1, you said, well, let's try diet for a few months and bring it back. But I, I really push the high-risk patients to start pharmacologic therapy day one, and that can be tough in the statin-phobic patient that doesn't want to do this. Another quick thing I want to mention is imaging studies. Not a huge fan of imaging studies, but they can be useful in the statin-phobic patient to show them their personal disease burden. You know, it's very powerful when you can show somebody their, their carotid IMT. You're already building plaque at a far higher rate than the person should be at your age. Here's your disease, but this is not a clinical trial somewhere. This is you. So confronting the patient with their own personal disease burden can be helpful in terms of convincing them that, that we need to move forward aggressively. That's an excellent point. I'm sure a number of radiologists are saying, yes, thank you for telling this. Um, if you're just tuning in, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD. I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz, and with me today is Dr. Gregory Pokrivka, Director of Baltimore Lipid Center. We're talking about challenges in dyslipidemia treatment for complicated patients. Dr. Pokrivka, I want to move into efficacy briefly, but first I want to give you the chance to talk a little bit about a savvy metaphor you've been using when you talk about trafficking lipoprotein. You have a, a nice metaphor that you like to use. Uh, go ahead and tell our, our audience a little bit about that. Absolutely. And we have to credit uh, one of my mentors, uh, Dr. Tom Dayspring, with, with coming up with this. But um, when we talk about looking at a lipid panel, we're, we're looking at neutral fats, cholesterol and triglycerides. They're insoluble in the bloodstream. Okay? They can't get anywhere to where they need to be unless they're packaged in a transportation vehicle known as a lipoprotein. A lipoprotein is basically a fat ball with a phospholipid bipolar outer coat, and it's got cholesterol and triglycerides built into it. These lipoproteins function as little dump trucks, basically, transporting cholesterol and triglycerides, the neutral fats, throughout the bloodstream to where they need to go. If you have too many bad dump trucks dumping off garbage into your arterial wall, you're going to build up uh, excessive plaque. You're going to have inflammation. Uh, you're going to increase clinical events. There's a lot of talk out there in the alternative medicine world, by the way, now about inflammation. You know, it's not about cholesterol. It's about inflammation. And the patients that come and say this, I, I say, come here, I want you to come in close. They're right. But, 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 but here's the explanation. It's not about cholesterol. I don't care what my cholesterol level is. That's just the amount of fat in my bloodstream. I care how many lipoprotein garbage trucks are getting into my arterial wall. That is a much better predictor of disease. You know, Tim Russert was told his cholesterol level was fine uh, two weeks before he died. He presumably had too much uh, poor lipoprotein trafficking going on, too many LDL particles, too many LDL garbage trucks, uh, causing plaque buildup and inflammation. And he, he paid for that, that excess, that abnormal trafficking with his life. So this is a useful analogy. Why do patients with an LDL cholesterol of 68, like Tim Russert, still have disease and die? It's because we're counting the wrong thing. We're counting the stuff in the dump trucks. We really need to count the number of dump trucks. You know, you get a traffic jam at 5 o'clock here in Chicago going home. There's too many trucks on the highway, right? Not because there's too many people in the cars or too much stuff in the cars, right? It's, it's the number of lipoprotein transport vehicles, the number of dump trucks on the highway that, that cause a problem. Statins reduce the, the number of dump trucks on the highway. 
they upregulate receptors in the liver that pull out the bad dump trucks. So you can't get this this retention and plaque building in the subendothelial space. That's that's the analogy. You know. So at every patient who comes in, we need to assess: is there abnormal lipoprotein trafficking going on? Many. Um, Young women, for example, have LDL cholesterols of 120, 130, 140, but you look at their number of dump trucks, their, their lipoprotein trafficking, it, it could be fine. They just have really big dump trucks. You know, they, they need to stay away from doctors who would put them on a statin. You know, and, and, uh, you know, and also we have patients, often insulin-resistant patients, who have LDL cholesterols of 60, 70, 80. You know, they seem to be a goal, but you, you look at their lipoprotein trafficking and count particles, and they've got big traffic jams going on. So, uh, and one last point on that, I know I'm, I'm, I'm getting long-winded here, but whenever, there's often a disagreement in patients between what the lipids show and what the dump truck count shows, okay? The, the, the clinical trials universally show that the, the disease follows the dump truck count. Whenever there's a discordance, and that's common in insulin-resistant patients, the disease follows the number of bad particles, and we have ready, readily available clinical tools to, to count these particles also. I feel this intuitive need to want to try to find some way to insert the term burning the midnight oil into your metaphor. And I'm trying to figure out a way to do that effectively. If we can think of some way to inc- include that way, whether the dump trucks need to be inhibited or uh, aided in burning the midnight oil. <laughs> well, I'm not sure about, about the midnight oil, but let me tell you, the, the excessive number of dump trucks fan the flames uh, of, uh, of the fires burning in the subendothelial space. The, the inflammation is directly related to the, to the constant assault of all these bad dump trucks on the endothelium. Yes, so that's, that's one analogy. So, Dr. Pokrivka, how would you assess all of this? That's the big question I think a lot of our listeners want to know. Right. What the clinician needs to do is to find a way to count these, these bad lipoprotein particle dump trucks. The simplest way is the non-HDL cholesterol, which is uh, in the ATP3 guidelines as a secondary goal. And we believe in ATP4 when it comes out this summer, I can look into the crystal ball while burning the midnight oil. Uh, I think ATP4 will be centered around non-HDL cholesterol. So it's total cholesterol minus HDL cholesterol. My total cholesterol is 150. My HDL cholesterol is 50. My non-HDL is 100. That number represents and correlates well with the number of bad lipoprotein dump trucks. The goal for high-risk patients is less than 130 on the non-HDL cholesterol. So many patients will have an LDL cholesterol at goal, but a certain percentage will still have uh, an elevated non-HDL cholesterol. That's residual risk. Okay, and once you identify that residual risk, you have effective strategies to treat it. You can uh, crank up your dose of statin, add a second drug, whatever. So please use non-HDL cholesterol as a way to assess risk once the patient is already treated with a statin to see what the residual risk is. You can go beyond that with advanced lipoprotein testing. You can count ApoB, uh, which directly correlates with the, with the number of bad particle dump trucks. And you can do NMR-derived LDL particle counts. Uh, all of this is available and perhaps for discussion in another venue when we have more time. But non-HDL cholesterol could make a huge impact in identifying and treating residual risk for the typical primary care clinician. We are out of time. I wish we had uh, more time to be able to ask you a number more questions on this fascinating topic. Uh, My thanks to Dr. Gregory Pokrivka for joining us today. We've been talking about challenges in dyslipidemia treatment for complicated patients. I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz. Be sure to visit us online at reachmd.com for access to this and many other programs. And thanks as always for listening.